Hey, writers, join our first draft weekly writers club. We meet every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern time. For more information, go to writingclassradio.com and click on the classes tab. Hey, everyone. I'm Allison Langer. And I'm Andrea Askowitz. And this is Writing Class Radio, a podcast created from the stories in our writing class. I'm a student in the class. And I'm the teacher of the class. And we are the producers of the show, along with Diego Saldana Rojas, our audio guy. Today, I'm your host. In this episode, we are bringing you our live show with award-winning solo performer Anne Randolph, recorded at the Lightbox in Wynwood. Let me set this up for you, so you can feel like you were there. It was just a couple of weeks ago. The theater was a big U-shape, and I was standing right smack in the middle. I was wearing pink, high heels, jeans, and a black shirt. Andrea was wearing jeans, uh, elevated flip-flops, and a black shirt. (laughs) Anyway, okay. On this episode, you will hear part of the live show, as well as an interview with Anne. I've always wondered what's behind the successes and failures of performance artists. Where do they get the courage to bear all? Anne Randolph answers all those questions and more. But before we get to that, Andrea and I both tell you why we write and share our stories. So, I want to introduce our musicians, Daniel Correa and Ahmed King. Ahmed is a world-renowned guitarist and producer, and Daniel is 19. He's a student at the University of Miami. 20, he said 20. 20? I'm sorry. He must have turned 20 since Friday. Um, Sorry about that. Anyway, he um, his song "Don't Stop," which you heard when you were walking in, just broke into the top 40. So give it up. American top 40, you guys. Casey Kasem. He's these guys. Is dead. Okay. Yes. Anyway, this is the first episode of our third season. We have 22 episodes on iTunes. And um, if you like, you can always rate and review us. We love that. You can send in your feedback. We love that too. She likes the bad feedback. I like the good feedback. Um, but this is our one year anniversary. So how's it? <laughs> Not of marriage, because I'm not gay and she has a wife, but um, of this podcast. Our first launch was in October, and we've been working together for a year, so how's it been working with me? Good. (laughs) Ditto. Okay. So... All right, as you know, our podcasts always have a theme and sometimes a writing lesson. Tonight, the theme is the importance of telling stories. Not fairy tales. Real, true, personal stories that you want no one to know, that you try to hide, that you're probably very ashamed of, and we want to tell you why. Well, I want to tell you why. I'm going to tell you my story. Okay, this is my cue. All right, bye. She's good on cues. Um, Okay, so about a year and a half after my daughter died, and I'm not telling that story and making everybody sad. If you want to listen to it, you can listen to the first episode. But I'm driving back from Publix, 
And on WLRN, I hear a advertisement for a writing class from some lady named Andrea Askowitz. Never heard of her. Whatever. <clears throat> and I was like, I like to write. Maybe I need something new. Maybe I need to write. I used to write like travel logs, travel journals, and I'd send them to my friends. And one of my friends said, <clears throat> great story, but you need a writing class. Thank you, Catherine Selman. You changed my life by being honest. Anyway, I signed up for Andrea's class, and I get there, and the first prompt is name. Write a story about your name. Easy. Allison. Should have been Leslie. My aunt stole the name. My cousin was born two weeks early. Er, and Allison. Now I'm Allison. Good. Whatever. It works. So second week, write about love. Love. I don't need to tell these people about love. My love life sucks. Okay. Um, I'm going to write a story about my dog, Molly. I love her. So I did. And after class, Andrea pulled me aside and she said, you need to get personal. So she said, I want you to go home and I want you to list all the things you don't want to write about. You want no one to know. And then I want you to circle the one that you least want to tell. And then I want you to bring that story in. So I come back the next week, no story, but I listen to somebody else's story and the next week and the next week and their stories about addiction and infidelity and abuse. And these people are really bearing all. And I think, I suck. I gotta step up. So the next week, I bring in my story. I've been working on it and working on it. I, I you know, cry through it, the whole thing. But I know I have to tell this story. Um, and I do. And I finish. And I look up at the class and I take a deep breath. And I felt such relief that I no longer had to carry that pain and that sadness and that secret. And I could finally move on from that person, that definition of the woman who lost a child. And I could move on to a better me, to the me that I needed to be for my other kids, for my friends, for me. And it was absolutely the best thing I ever did. Yeah, thank you. So Andrea and I decided we need to have a podcast. We need to, ha to share our stories from the class. We need to share them with other people so that they would hear them and be inspired to tell their story and to heal and to not hold on to their junk. So <clears throat> we did. And that's how we, that's how Writing Class Radio came to be. I asked my friend Andrea why she writes Here's Andrea Askowitz telling us why.
Daniel Correa. Thank you, Allison. 13 years ago, I was in my very first memoir class. I was also eight months pregnant. I got pregnant on my own because I was almost 35 and I didn't want to lose the chance. And also I was single and also a lesbian. <laughs> I still am not single, still am a lesbian. I hear my mom, this is where I hear my mom. She's like, why do you always have to say you're a lesbian? Lesbian. <laughs> so, um, pregnancy was not fun for me. I, I bought sperm, I, I went through this whole effort, and it was everything I wanted. But I had, what I was diagnosed with was, that's not the funny part. <laughs> I, it was everything I wanted, but once I got pregnant, I had what doctors call hormone-induced depression. So I spent my entire pregnancy, pretty much my entire pregnancy, under the covers. I would go to my job, which um, at the time I really liked. I, well, before I got pregnant, I really liked. I was the director of a nonprofit organization called Bike Out that I um, founded. And, um, and thank you, yeah. And, and probably because I'd already paid, I would go once a week to my writing class. So one day I was, walk, I was walking down the hall at work and um, there was a guy who uh, worked at the end of the hall who was a photographer and he had this whole photography studio, lights, all that set up. And he came out of his office and he said, um, he asked me if I would pose for pictures for him because he was looking for a model, a pregnant model. So I did it. We took pictures. Tasteful nudes. And after the session, he said, Who rubs you down? I said, No one. He said, I'll rub you down. I th immediately thought, I'm going to get laid. I am gonna get laid. Get laid. So I said, yeah, cool, thanks. Yeah, I'd like that. And we made a date, and, um, and I, I bought the lavender oil, and I got the candles, and um, I told all my friends, I'm gonna get laid, oh my god, I'm gonna get laid. Okay, I get it. I, okay, I know I'm a lesbian. Lesbian. But, um, so it had been a, a while since I'd been touched at all. And like the last time anyone even got like close to down there was, um, was my fertility doctor. And all she did was, that's the universal sign for um, impregnation with a, Impregnation. Impregnation with a turkey baster. Right, the syringe, turkey baster. 
it wasn't that sexy. So um, I made the, so he came over and, um, oh wait, before that I want to say that, so I was telling all my friends, right, that I was going to get laid, so a friend of mine created this CD for me called Bound to Get Laid by the Fifth Song. So I put on the CD. Do you remember? And I um, lit the candles and I made this really sexy dinner, Pasta Primavera. And we ate dinner, and then it was time for my massage. So um, I, I got on the bed naked, because you know he'd already seen me naked, and isn't there with, is this where this was going anyway? So um, so I was like huge, huge pregnant, and so he, I was kind of on my side, and um, he was starting with my back and like shoulders, arms moving up, and then he like did this great, like like he like grazed. Um, my uh, anatomy and and I said do you want to take your shirt off he said no <laughs> so then um, he we continued the massage and this point I was on my back and um, he was like uh, up and over and around on my belly and getting really into it in two hands and then he was like two totally full frontal and I said do you want to take your shirt off no so then he um, went down to my feet and um, worked his way up like the ankles the, the well you know the legs um, knees thighs and he was like again like with both hands like working the inside of my thighs really hard and good and fast and then he was like moving up moving up and and then he did again like another like total grazing and I was like do you want to take your shirt off now he said no I'm good And he said, your kitty is pretty. <laughs> and then he left. So I, I swore to myself that I would never tell anyone what happened. That was, I was just going to bury it. It was done. No more. And then a few days later, I went to my writing class. And um, so what happens in a writing class, and Allison sort of explained it. So you get a prompt, and then you write. And I don't remember what my teacher my teacher Terry Silverman at the time I don't remember the prompt she gave me maybe it was a, a time you felt totally pathetic and desperate or maybe it was write about something you wouldn't want to tell your mother 
or maybe she just threw out a word, a random word. Like maybe she threw out cat. Whatever it was, I wrote the story about the man who rubbed me down. And um, then what happens in a writing class is uh, you're encouraged to read what you wrote out loud. And because I'm a good student, when it came my turn, I read what I wrote, what I just told you. And what happened in that class changed the course of my life. That class turned me into a storytelling missionary. Because what happened when I told that story is my classmates died laughing. They laughed so hard that I knew they got me. No one in my class asked me to take a shower. No one felt sorry for me. And I don't think there were any lesbians in that class who were pregnant and had thrown themselves at a man and then got rejected. <laughs> but I knew by their reaction that they'd all had some kind of experience where they felt pathetic. So um, I walked in feeling really, really lonely. And I walked out feeling pretty okay. okay <laughs> these guys have a goddamn song for everything okay so what's so cool about tonight is that the woman the, the person who's coming to the stage next was sitting right next to me another student in that very first writing class Anne Randolph I owe her everything for laughing at my pain I am forever indebted to her. But before I welcome Ann Randolph, we have a special guest tonight who is going to get us in the mood to write. Ann performed on stage for an hour. What you're about to hear are segments from that live show as Anne tells the story of how she became a solo performer on Broadway and then lost it all. Right after Andrea introduces Anne, Anne walks on stage wearing a blonde wig and a new agey, long, blue, colorful dress. She was playing a character she calls Shanti Lightgiver, a woman who's written a book called My Yoni Speaks. Speaks was translated into five languages, including Mexican. And it became an international bestseller. And then I got my own Broadway. Are you texting right now? You put that away right this very minute. My Yoni is talking. Put it away. My 
Yoni Speaks was, I was invited to Broadway to perform my Yoni Speaks. And I know what you're thinking. It was like the vagina monologues, but no, it was nothing like that. My Yoni actually spoke. <laughs> and the most quoted line from my Yoni Speaks was, I want you to bang me, baby. <laughs> I sounded like a black man, but it did. <laughs> anyway, Oprah loved it, and she invited me to the Oprah show to be on her show, the culmination of fame and fortune. And I get on the Oprah show, and she starts talking to my Yoni, and I think Oprah likes my Yoni. And she says, well, Shanti, what's your story? What's your story? And I just froze. I just froze. What's my story? What is my story? I know Yoni's story, but what's my story? And I just fr- and Oprah saw that, and she got to commercial break. And I just went to I went to the green room, and I just started freaking out. I'm like, what's my story? What's my story? What's my story? I can't keep saying these words as Shanti Lightgiver when I need to be saying that myself as Anne Randolph. I just freaked you out a little bit, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. She freaked us out because she ripped her wig off and then stepped out of her dress. She stood in front of the audience wearing jeans and a dark t-shirt. Her natural brown hair was tied in a low ponytail. Her stance was slightly hunched and her arms hung at her side. (laughs) My whole life, oh my God, all I knew was how to slap on a wig and become somebody else. And it started early on when I saw Carol Burnett. Anybody in here Carol Burnett fans? Yeah! I love Carol Burnett. All her characters were wild, misfits, mar- you know, like these oddballs living on the margins of life. And I was so attracted to these wild characters. And my parents indulged me. They let me stay up in second grade and watch the Carol Burnett show. And I said, I'm interested in these characters. And then they let me go to thrift stores and costume shops and pick out all these wild characters in second grade, picking out the outfits I wanted to wear. And I remember at Halloween one year, I think it was like in third grade, my friends couldn't wait to dress up as princesses and fairies, and I couldn't wait to dress up as a homeless bag lady. wear the costume I became the character I had well these were some teeth and I remember going through school going you got a nickel for cheese sandwich you got a nickel for cheese sandwich if we got a nickel for cheese sandwich I like cheese sandwiches (laughs) and the teacher's like what the fuck was that (laughs) and they're calling and say I think something's wrong with your daughter (laughs) and then high school came and there was Gilda Radner and Saturday Night Live yeah I said, I am going to follow in her footsteps. I'm going to go to college, major in theater, and then got on Saturday Night Live. And I remember running into the living room where my parents were, and I said, Mom and Dad, I can't wait to go to college, major in theater, and get on Saturday Night Live. And the first thing out of their mouth was, Anne, if you major in theater, you're going to end up like one of your characters, homeless. <laughs> so did anybody ever have that, where they're encouraged, encouraged, and then when it's time to pick a calling, you're like, no, you can't do that. So I'm going to write these little bullet points, because we're in a writing workshop, which is told no, find another way. So... I was going to find a way to go to college, and I found a college, Ohio University, that let me make up my own major. And I could take all the theater classes I wanted once I started sophomore year. 
and my parents agreed to that. And I would get a degree in general studies, which is like a bachelor in science, what the fuck, I don't know how I got that, but that's what it was. And so freshman year, at the end of freshman year, the show's right here, show's right here. <laughs> and the freshman year, I get a call from my parents saying, and we cannot afford college. You, you need to take out a student loan and get a job. Well, I immediately took out a student loan to go back to college, but I need to get a job to pay my room and board. And I don't, I, I, this is hard to say, but I have no job skills whatsoever. The only job I ever had was McDonald's, and I got fired at it for putting Big Macs through drive through with no meat in them. <laughs> I start looking for jobs on campus, start looking around, I see nothing, and nothing that would take my job skills. And one night, in frustration, I go to the movies, saying, fuck it, I'm not gonna think about jobs anymore, and the movie I see is The King of Hearts. Anybody ever see that movie? One person in here. Okay, King of Hearts is about these mentally ill patients that live in this insane asylum on top of this hill in France, and they're released at the end of World War I, and they take over the whole town. And these mentally ill patients, insane patients, they are the most creative, imaginative, wild, artistic personalities. And I think, oh my God, I want to get a job in a mental hospital. <laughs> And I find out there is one right next to our campus. <laughs> and I go up there and I say, hey, hey, I, I'd like to get a job here. And they go, we don't have any jobs here, but we let six students a semester studying psychology live here, free room and board. And I go, well, I'm not studying psychology, but I could, I could write plays with the patients. I had never done anything like this in my life, and I didn't know any mentally ill people in my life. And the director said, I mean, I practically threw myself at his feet, giving them list and list of all the things I could do. And finally he said, I have never seen someone so passionate to move into a mental institution. You can move in. So where other kids were dropped off at the dorm, I was dropped off at the locked schizophrenic unit. And I will never, never forget my first day. I walked in to that unit and I immediately knocked out with the smell of urine and dirty feet. And there's a guy on with no pants on, his penis out, going, masturbating, going, touch it, touch it. You want to touch it? Go ahead, touch it, touch it, touch it, touch it. Over and over, like, oh my God, I was a virgin, you know? And I'm like, what am I doing here? And then there was another woman, like a social work type person, who was talking to a catatonic man in front of the nurse's station. And that catatonic man, no affect, and she's like, Jim, how do we start a friendly conversation? <laughs> we start by saying hello. Can you say hello, Jim? I want to die. No, we say hello. Can you say hello and raise the corner of your lips, huh? I want to die. And that pattern will repeat itself over and over again. And then there was another woman with no teeth, bun on her head, standing, looking outside the window, saying the same thing over and over again. I want to go home. I want to go home.
you hear me? I want to go home. 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 And it was nothing like the king of hearts. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, how am I going to stay here? How am I going to be able to make it here? And I sat down with the patients, and we started talking. And right away, I saw that there was no filter, no sensor. They were not hiding anything. They were completely vulnerable. Their souls were bare. And I thought to myself, yes, these are my peeps. <laughs> and I went to college the next day. My, it was, I was at college, but I went to my monologue class the next day. First monologue class, and everybody was doing Shakespeare and Ibsen. And I run in and I say, I have an original monologue. It is called Touch It. <laughs> professors are like, oh my God, you can't say that and you're inappropriate. Inappropriate. And then luckily I had another TA that was right there who pulled me aside and said, and what you're doing? It has humanity. It has pathos. It has humor. You keep going. And had I not had that TA right then and there, I don't know what would have happened. So when you are pursuing this creative life, this was huge to me, is support. Who champions you? Who says, yes, you are on track. You've got to find that support. So I did not go back to that class. Instead, I cleared out part of that mental institution, and I started writing plays with the patients. And I would cast my friends and the patients, and nobody would know who would who. Because <laughs> who's really crazy? And the hospital, I was only supposed to be there one semester, but they loved it. And the patients loved it. And the hospital said, Anne, would you like to stay another semester? And then another semester. And finally they said, Anne, we think you fit in here. <laughs> and they didn't, and I stayed my whole college. I stayed in this mental institution. And they said, we notice you don't have a car, Anne. And they gave me the keys to the state van. <laughs> now, I could go anywhere I wanted if I took a van load of mental patients. <laughs> Oh my God! I had my, my boyfriend. I had a boyfriend that was not in the mental institution. Thank God. He was playing in a rock and roll band down on campus, and we would show up twelve schizophrenics and myself, and we'd hit the dance floor like each with our own way of moving and groove, and it was like instant party. Oh. Well. After four years of living there, it was time to graduate and say goodbye to this incredible family. These were chronically institutionalized, never going to leave the Athens State Mental Hospital. It was really gut-wrenching, and I left feeling this family and also a, a ton of material based on what I had learned and seen there. And I was on my way to New York City to lay it on the line, get on Saturday Night Live, but I had no friggin' money, which was always an issue. So I I read in the back of the newspaper, our school newspaper, that I could make $20,000 cleaning fish in Alaska. Anybody ever read that ad in the back of school newspaper? Well, I believed it. <laughs> and for graduation, my parents gave me a one-way ticket to Alaska. <laughs> and 
I get up there and I get a job on the slime line. And the slime line is where the salmon come down the conveyor belt. And my job is to pick the salmon off as fast as possible, pick the blood balls off the salmon as they go down the belt. But I am like Lucille Ball and the fish are going every freaking which way. And I get fired from that job. Now I'm all alone up there with no money, living on a cannery spit, two months, three months, no job, living in this pup tent. I'm like, I gotta find a job. And then I see this ad in the paper for college professor wanted in playwriting and humanities. Humanities, I can't even say it, because you know what? I never took a humanities course in my life. <laughs> but I figured, how hard could it be? <laughs> so I go in there, they wanted a PhD professor, and I knew how to write plays because I'd done it with the patients. So I walk into this office and I say yes I'm a college professor yes I teach humanities yes I teach humanities and they go you got the job so my other big lesson fake it till you make it <laughs> fake it till you make it and I put up the first first uh, play for the college based on the touch it guy and you know how I was poo pooed being in college but now I was professor where he's like bravo bravo love that she's an intellectual genius <laughs> fake it till you make it so I started making money and I could have moved out of my tent, but instead I squatted an old gold miner's cabin that was out two miles from the town. I had to wear a little ski lamp to go in and go out. But I was partying at the time, so I'd be drinking, and so I got scared that I'd be skiing out. It snows 70 feet in Valdez, Alaska. I thought, no, I'm gonna be drunk out here in a snowbank and nobody's gonna find me. So but this was very important though. I didn't want to move into apartment because then I wouldn't have the money for New York City. So sacrifice, what are you willing willing to sacrifice to pursue this writing or any artistic goal or any creativity. So sacrifice. I stayed living in the tent for four months, then moved into the gold miner's cabin, and then I thought, I'm going to friggin' die out there. I'm going to die in a snowbank and nobody's going to know. And I like, I gotta find another job, I gotta find, not another job, but I gotta find a place to live. And I saw this ad, thank God for ads in newspapers. This one said, a youth minister wanted free room and board in a church basement. I am not a youth minister. But I love kids and I love God. How hard could it be? So I get the job as the youth minister. I party at the Pipeline Club till five in the morning, then I put on the youth minister suit. And I saved, after one year of all this, $20,000, and now I was ready for New York City. Yeah! Sacrifice. So I stopped in Boston to see my old boyfriend on my way to New York. He goes, Ann, get your feet wet here first. I'm like, no, I'm going to New York City. But I thought I missed him. It was a long distance relationship. So I stayed in Boston for a year and I got in the best comedy groups and we were making out and life was good and I loved him, but I knew I wanted bigger fish to fry. I was in New York City. So after a year, I'm going to New York City. Only thing was that I used up all of that money. Yeah. So I knew newspapers had served me well. So I put an ad in the New York Times saying, Alaskan Bushwoman <laughs> seeks free room and board in exchange for tutoring in the arts and or companionship. Yes, and I got a lot of freaky calls like, let me in your bush, woman, let me in your bush. <laughs> But I got one legitimate call from this woman. Her mother had just died. 
and her father was all alone in the El Dorado building on Central Park West. Anybody know that building? Gorgeous Art Deco building in New York City. And I go up to interview along with other people. And when it's my turn to interview, the elevator takes us straight up to the floor. This penthouse opens up, and I meet with him, Mr. Jacob Lichtenfeld. He has a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. He's 82 years old, and he's in grief. He's just lost his wife. And we start talking, I'm interviewing with him, and he takes this photograph of his wife where the glass has been removed, and just her face is there, but there's no face because he's repetitiously kissed it over and over and over again, saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry to his wife. And as we're talking more, something in him, or something I say, makes him laugh. And he says to me, you're a kook, aren't you? <laughs> and I go, maybe. <laughs> and he goes, you got the job. So I move in. My bedroom, I have my own bedroom overlooking Central Park, and all I have to do is eat kefelta fish with them every morning. That's my only job. It's wonderful. And I forgot to put this on. Intention. That's what I did. I put an intention in the newspaper. That's what happened. And so I start going around, trying to get an agent, trying to find out how to get on Saturday Night Live, and going to see shows every single night of the week. And what I see are people that are so much better than me. I see Lily Tomlin. I see Louis Black before he's made it. And he's performing the shitty basement for 12 people and a midnight show. And he's an intellectual genius. And I think if Louis Black hasn't made it, how am I ever going to make it? And Lily Tomlin, who has that incredible physical comedy, and I compare myself, compare myself, compare myself, and I totally lose faith that I will ever make it as an artist. I lose all faith in myself. Comparison kills creativity. That's what happened to me in New York City. Anybody ever have that one? Oh, we got a little, I got a little thing there. Comparison kills creativity. Is this mic gonna come back on by any chance? Comparison kills creativity. And I just lost all faith. And I thought, I gotta figure out my life because it's not gonna be a life as an artist. And the school year was ending. I had a little part-time job where I was helping with after-school kids. And that was ending. I thought, I need to make a chunk of change fast. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I need to make money fast, go back to school, maybe get a master's degree, do something. And just then, the Exxon Valdez crashed. And that was the town I was teaching college in. And they were paying $2,000 a week to clean oily rocks in Alaska. And to me, at that time, in my 20s, that was big money. So I take my last bit of money, and I go up to Alaska, and I get a job working the oil spill. And I clean those oily rocks 16 hours a day with cheerleader pom-poms in oil. Oh, oh my God, covered up to here in oil, just oil. And I remember on my one day off, I went to a hot tub, and literally an oil sheen came up from my body. Hardcore work, grunt work. But I was making money. I thought, I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to keep doing this. And then they decide to pick a winter crew to go out to sea for a year, making that same amount of money. And the only job requirement was that you knew how to drive a skiff. 
Now a skiff is a little boat with a little horsepower, 30, 35 horsepower motor. I don't know what it is, but it, you have to drive a boat. Well, I didn't know how to drive a boat, but I figured, how hard could it be? Because <laughs> I figure once out to sea, they can't turn back. <laughs> so I get the job. And I go out to sea. And I am the only woman on this boat. That's what I did not know. With 13 men with eighth grade education from Louisiana, good old boys. Except one guy, a Filipino who had a master's degree in theater. Ah. And he came up to here on me and we fell in love. And let me tell you, that is the right height for a guy because it's like, woo, yeah, feels like really good. His name was Amato. And when there was no fraternization on the boat, so we had to sneak around to have sex, which made for very juicy sex on that boat. I'm feeling juicy. Yeah, and, and also, what got me was Amato, because he was Filipino, and there was also an Afro-American cook on the boat, they never learned his name or Amato's name. For example, with Amato, these guys, these white good old boys, would say to Amato, hey, Julio, get that rope. Hey, Julio, start that engine. Hardcore racism that I'd never, ever seen in my life. And I'm on a boat trapped with these guys. Not to mention the sexism being the only woman. I would come down to the galley to eat my breakfast, pancakes, sausage, wouldn't matter. There on the TV is a VHS tape of some girl bent over from behind getting it. So I'm watching porn as I'm eating 24 hours a day. And I thought, I'm not gonna make it out here. I'm watching porn, there's racism, sexism, and I could feel that anger, that rage eating up at me because I wanted to express myself. I couldn't take it, but I'm cooped on this boat. So what happened was the impulse to tell the story. The impulse to express came back. So I figured, they're not gonna change, but I'm gonna illuminate this with my little comedy act. So as they are watching the porn, and this is something I did learn about porn, I figured, you know, it would have been a lot easier to make my living writing porn. <laughs> because it's so easy to write porn because it is just a call and a response. Like the guy will say, do you want me to fuck you? And the girl will say, yes, I want you to fuck me. And the guy will say, do you want me to fuck you? Yes, I want you to fuck me. Call and response. And then right before he's going to climax, he goes, do you want, he has an E. Do you want me to fuck you harder? Yes, fuck me harder! <laughs> if you are laughing, you have watched porn. Yes, you have. <laughs> and these guys, so they'd be watching the porn, and they would sit, so I decided I'm just going to do what they're seeing. So I walk in while they're on the galley. This is so hard to do with a the microphone. They're watching the porn, and I would come in, and I'd go, come on my face, you want to come? After one year of being out to sea with these dudes, I had saved up a chunk of change. 
And it was time to say goodbye. Goodbye with a chunk of change and goodbye to another family. They did not change. I did not change. But we found a way to relate. And so I leave Alaska with a pocket full. I'm on my way to New York City to finally land on the line. And I stop in Santa Fe, New Mexico to see a friend of mine. And she says, Ann, get your feet wet here first. I'm like, no. I am going to New York City. I'm tired of getting my feet wet everywhere. But... I borrowed her bicycle, I didn't have a car, I was on vacation, and I go up to this canyon road, if you've been in Santa Fe, the richest road in New Mexico, and there's like this adobe big mansion, and in the back is this airstream. And I don't know what possesses me, but I get off my bicycle, and I write a little note, and I say, hey, I'm used to living in boats, I'm used to living in tents, can I live in your airstream? And I leave my phone number. I don't know what made me do that because I had a chunk of change in my pocket. Well, the next day I get a phone call saying the Airstream is not ours, but the mansion is. You can move in tomorrow. Three professors studying chaos theory at the Santa Fe Institute invited me to live with them in their Adobe mansion. Look at your faces. You're like, no, I don't believe it. (laughs) Joseph Campbell talks about synchronicity, invisible hands, And that's what happened in Santa Fe. Beautiful gifts were given to me in Santa Fe just from being on my purpose to write my solo show. That came to me, these invisible hands. And so I start looking for a theater because I want to have the perfect theater to do my first solo show in. And I start dating this contractor boyfriend. And whenever I uh, join, I mean, whenever I come to a town, the first thing I do is join a church because I love to sing classical music. So I joined St. Bees Episcopal Church. So all these little elements are important. I start looking for a theater. I start visualizing exactly what I want, but nothing is coming. And then one day the choir director of this church says, hey, we're we're here, you're looking for this outdoor theater. We're here, you're looking for this very specific theater, and you haven't found it yet. Well, you know what? We got some land here, and we know you're dating a contractor. You can build it. This land given to me by St. Bede's Episcopal Church, I build this outdoor theater that I dream of. Amazing. Just from listening, really, what wants to happen come through you. And so one week, I don't know about you, but I'm a procrastinator. I will wait to the last minute to finish anything. Does anybody have that problem in the audience? <laughs> so I knew I couldn't finish the show. I had so much done, but I couldn't finish it. So what I needed to do was put an ad in the newspaper announcing the show, a press release. So I put the press release out before I finished it, and that forced me to finish it. So this big thing is accountability. And one week before the show opens, I realized that there is no place for the audience to sit. I don't know how that could happen, but it did. And I'm like, what am I going to do? And in frustration, I take a walk in the Sangro to Crystal Mountains. And I come across this good old boy. And I say, you're not going to believe this. I have this beautiful theater that I just built. I'm going to open in one week, and there's no place for the audience to sit. And he goes, don't worry, ma'am. i got a set of bleachers in my backyard. I'll pull them in tomorrow. <laughs> and just like that, a set of 150-seat accordion bleachers come into that theater. Amazing. Joseph Campbell, that invisible hand that helps when you're on your path, when you're following your bliss. So I put up my show, and I get my first review in the Albuquerque Journal, and it's fantastic. And the New Mexican. And I get my SAG card, my actor's card. And I get cast in a spaghetti western. And there's a director who casts me, and he says, Ann, you're so funny. After this movie, what are you going to do? And I go, I want to go to New York. I want to get on Saturday Night Live. He goes, well, if you want to get on New York, you need to go to Los Angeles. 
I'm like, what? He's like, yes, Los Angeles, California. Anybody that gets to Saturday Night Live comes from this school called Groundlings. Has anybody heard of Groundlings in here? Yeah, it's the comedy school. And so I didn't want to go to L.A. because to L.A., to me, where all the fake people lived. I was from Ohio. And I didn't have any money now because all the money had gone to building that theater in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So I had to find a job. So I got a job at a homeless shelter for mentally ill women. The graveyard shift. Seven at night to seven in the morning. And why did I take that job? I took that job because I had to go to the Groundlings School. If you wanted to get in the company, you had to start the school at beginner level. And I had, this job was $8.60 an hour, and I could sleep there just a little bit, enough to have energy during the day to take the classes. So I started beginner level in Groundlings, and I'm in the class with Will Ferrell, Sherry O'Terry, Chris Kattan. <laughs> and then I make it up to intermediate, and they do too. And then I make it up to advanced, and hundreds of people are being weeded out of the school, and we keep making it up, 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 and then finally we make it into the company. And I'm performing every week with him. And the characters that I am doing are coming straight out of the homeless shelter, being inspired by them. These women, especially the crack whores and the prostitutes, oh my God, the things that came out of their mouth, but what came out of their mouth was the friggin' truth. I'm turning into what I would do at night. I would start creating and playing with my characters while the women were asleep. And let's put on some... uh, crack horror music right now. At this point in the show, Anne takes off her t-shirt and jeans. She's wearing a bustier, which barely holds up her giant boobs. The pantyhose look used up, torn, and dirty. She grabs another wig that appears to have come from a garbage can just outside the theater. She looks trashy and sexy all at the same time. And then she went off mic which is why next you'll hear an interview we had the following day. I asked Anne why it was necessary to start the show in costume. Shanti light givers coming from my own, uh, I sound a little bit like her right now, just doing her, I sound like that's what she sounds like, is uh, I teach at Esalen and I teach at New Age Spiritual Centers and I'm often around um, Uh, people that are really into meditation, which I do meditation. I think it's my own alter ego that can't meditate worth a damn, but continues to try to meditate and do spiritual things, and I suck at it. So I created this alter ego that is like, over the top. Shanti, like all the characters are important to me because they're just sub-personalities. Like I think we all have these different people within us, residing within us and like shadow selves. And so I like starting her off because she's in full costume, full wig, full makeup. And it's me, one of the ways that I hide. Of course, I don't go out in the world looking like that, but I know I have a particular mask on in certain areas. And so I just heighten that mask. And I think for the longest time, I would, um, you know, I was aware of these masks, and my whole idea is how many can I peel off and get to just me? I wanted to understand what's going on for her when she walks into the venue for the first time. Ah, when I walk into the theater, the first thing I'm checking out is the space and how to create intimacy within that space and community before the audience even comes in. So arranging chairs, I mean, that's a physical thing. The other thing that I'm thinking about well, I'm doing exercises to try to get myself present in the room. So instead of just warming up on stage, I will go to all the different places within the stage, like the last row, and speak to the center stage, to the side row, and speak to the center stage, 
trying to energetically create a community before I even begin. Does that make sense? Oh, yes, it makes sense. I saw you sitting up in the rows, and I'm like, what is she doing up there? Because I was so nervous about my own stuff. Like, I couldn't think about anything. I mean, I wouldn't say nervous, but I was still trying to figure out what I was trying to say and, and how I was going to get it across. And I was excited, but I noticed, like, everyone else was really calm. And so I was wondering, like, is it just because you've done it so many times, or it's just because... You've, you're out there. You, you don't walk into a room and worry about what people are thinking or what, or do you? No, I care a great deal and I work with that too. No, I'm in the toilet. I have diarrhea every time before a show. <laughs> I mean, I have terrible nerves. I've always had terrible nerves. And yet I always tell my students, feel the fear and do it anyway. And so I'm working with the nerves and I've gotten better over the years with that. And the other thing that I really work with is um, like... To be the best on stage, you have to really try in your life to be really great energetically. Like, all oh, that sounds like woo-woo energetically. But, um, for example, like I used to eat at McDonald's. I had a McDonald's addiction. <laughs> Big Mac. Yes, I did. Super combo. Large. And I, I was like, I had to eat. And it, I could see that it affected, like, all the crap. Like, I was heavy out on stage. So there was something about with creativity uh, I think it was like an eating disorder with McDonald's that I had to let go of that in order to be the best on stage. It was getting in the way of my performance. And the same with like Julia Cameron talks about crazy fucking makers that are in your life. Like you have to weed out a lot of stuff, I think, to be your very best. And what is what is it for you? And to me, it was like I had to learn to spend a lot of time alone. I had to remove myself from situations that were just kind of nutso, and I cha- really changed the way I ate, and then I, I worked on meditation. Well, so have you um, ever gone out and bombed? Yes, I've gone out and bombed many, many times. Okay, so this is really cool. I didn't even do this in the show. When I, so Squeezebox, after you know it closed in, in uh, New York City, it was devastating, and I lost pretty much all my faith. I don't know if that's on there. No, that wasn't. I don't think it was. So I'm going to talk about it. So to get this culmination of, you know, I was working in the homeless shelter and then uh, for 10 years and 20 years working at my craft and not making it, getting awards, bestseller show in L.A. by the L.A. Week, the Ovation Award, and just pretty much getting to that point of wanting to give up and uh, lose faith. And then I was discovered by Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft. And I was working at the shelter at the time, and they – said, we want to take this show to Broadway, and we want to make a movie of it. And this was incredible for me, because this is what I've wanted my whole entire life. And I remember Anne Bancroft saying she wanted to play one of my characters, and I go, which one? She goes, the crack whore. I mean, this character that nobody else wanted, Anne Bancroft wanted to play. So finally, after 10 years at the shelter, $8.60 an hour, I was able to quit my job. And I went back home to live with my parents in Ohio uh, to get ready to open in May. And that's when um, the call came in from Mel that Anne was diagnosed with cancer and that we need to postpone the show to August, that she was going to be okay, and that they were turning me over to another producer to handle the media, you know, the press, all that, to get it ready for the opening in August. But as the months went on, I heard very little from this other producer. And it was a really hard time because... um, I wanted to call Mel, pick up the phone, and tell him, look, you can't open it eight shows a week on 42nd Street with not a big machine behind you marketing. And But then I found out that his wife was dying. My mentor, I had been working with her, and uh, it was 
that thing that psychologists say, fight, flight, or freeze? Well, I just froze. I did not pick up the phone. I did nothing. I held on this glimmer of hope that I would get this incredible review in the New York Times, which would then launch me and keep that show running. And because I'd only gotten really beautiful reviews in my life. And so the show opened in New York in August. Mel Brooks and Bancroft were there. And my parents, everybody was there, flew in. And I got a great review in the New York Times. But it wasn't enough to turn the ship, sinking ship of nobody buying tickets in advance. So Mel started taking out quarter page ads in the New York Times for $20,000 a piece to try to turn it around. My parents started taking, uh, going up and down the half a half price booth, TKTS, saying, please come see my daughter. Please come see my daughter. I think it was the most heartbreaking experience to get my dream and to know that it was dying in the very same minute. And I, uh, so the show closed and I went to, um, I didn't really have anywhere to go. I had no money. I went back home to live with my parents and I'm, thank God for my parents. And I stayed with them. And I remember being in my bedroom with uh, books on the wall, like, do what you love and the money will follow. And I'm like, fuck you, (laughs) you know, Uh, crazy. And really wanting to give up uh, completely after years and years of this. And eating, sleeping, masturbating, and (laughs) just all the kind of things that you do, the addictive stuff you do to try to not face the feeling. And... Uh, and then my mother had a stroke and was paralyzed on one side and my father was diagnosed with inoperable lung cancer and the grief was too much in that time and I wanted to die I remember I went down that dark hole uh, and it was right around my birthday my friend sent me a book of poems by Rumi and I did that thing that desperate people do which is you look through a poetry book and you try to find the poem that speaks to you that will uh, offer you salvation, hallelujah. And uh, the poem I got was that chickpea leaps to the edge of the pot where it's being boiled and says to the chef, why are you torturing me? And the chef says, you think I'm torturing you, but I'm giving you flavor, more character. Now boil some more. Thank you, Rumi. And so that was a big, when I read that, it was not like a huge epiphany, but a little, it was like a little shot of faith because I knew that everything I had written up to this point, every little boiling I'd had, I'd become more fierce as a writer, more fierce as a performer, as like I got more wild. I Liberation came from the wax, I have to say. So I picked up that pen and started writing about all these losses of Anne dying, my dream of Broadway dying, I've had no money dying, no home dying, now dad dying, mom had a stroke, and it was too much. And um, in writing about it, once again, writing always saves me, I could feel myself starting to move through it a little bit because I was expressing what was deeply in there. And this sounds very woo-woo, but when you show up, to the universe that you're back on, that you're going to pick up that pen again, miracles happen. And my old boyfriend's mother was an old boyfriend who asked me to marry him. He had a vineyard in Napa. I don't know what I was thinking. I didn't say <laughs> yes to him. But um, he, his mother was in the audience along with him the first week it was in New York City. And she heard what had happened. And she sent me a check for $10,000 and said, get back on your feet. And I'm going to say her name is Joyce Carroll. Yeah, she's a beautiful, beautiful woman. So um, anyway, that was a, a gift to me. And 
I was able to also with another Marcia Stein who offered me a free place, this like penthouse in Santa Monica to live in and said, she said, get back on your feet. So I had this free room and board in this penthouse in Santa Monica, $10,000 from Joyce and like, okay, and I'm going to keep going here. So I kept going. And then I started writing about the show with grief. And here's where we get to failure. So now in that show, I, the one other miracle happened. It, a huge producer saw Squeezebox in New York City before it closed. It only lasted like three weeks and dead, right? Before there's nobody in the seats, even with their great reviews. And this producer saw it and he said, a year and a half out, I'll book you in all the top regional theaters across the country. And so I had a year and a half, I would have income coming in. And in the meantime, I kept Staying, I think it was a gift because that I didn't get the hoopla on Broadway uh, that I think about it now or the movie because at the time looking back now I was able to stay with my father uh, that makes me cry but during the time that he was dying and uh, I was so close to my dad still uh, feel him and my mom and dad both my parents were orphans so I think we had a very uh tight family so to be with him during that was, was beautiful and um he uh so when he passed away and my mom got adjusted to life in a nursing home I wrote about uh, this was all what I was writing about these losses and I put it in a show called Loveland and Loveland opened in San Francisco in 2009 and by this time I had a lot of fans who had come to see Squeezebox the show that had toured around the country and they came to San Francisco to see the opening Loveland and I had three weeks of previews before this opening and on the first night of previews I had some students and friends in the audience and they couldn't even look at me after the show and I had one student with no impulse control come backstage and say it was so cool to see my teachers suck fucking hardcore yeah and I'm like, oh my God. And I knew I sucked. And this is why. Because I, I mean, thank God for previews. You have previews to work things out. But I sucked because I was still hiding behind a mask. Even though I'd taken the wigs away, I was still afraid. I had written with this vulnerability, but I was afraid to show it on stage. It scared the daylights out of me. And thank God for my director, Joshua Townsend Zellner, who said, Anne, the writing is there, but you're not there yet. You've got three weeks to get there every night and practice being more vulnerable and real on stage. Now, that was terrifying because that meant every single night in a preview, I fucking sucked. Like people, they, no standing ovation, no wild applause, which I got with the other one. It was just like shame city. I would go back to my hotel and cry my eyes out. Like, I can't do this. And thank God, I think having support of a director or somebody that's going to champion you through when you want to friggin' give up, which I did. And each night, I was also, um, t somebody told me about Tavis Smiley, and he had this book called Fail Up. And that's literally what I did every night. I failed up, and my suck level got less and less and less. So by the time the show opened, three weeks later, uh, it was supposed to run for six weeks. It just I got the little man jumping out of the seat which is the highest thing you can get in San Francisco in the reviews and it sold out for two years straight I made a chunk of change off that show performing it yeah just sold out sold out people went wacko over it but the most incredible thing which was amazing was the audience the audience like I've been doing shows my whole life I mean now probably up to what 30 years doing 20 25 years doing shows and not making it until this point making a huge living not huge living but theater performance living and um people would wait in the lobby uh to tell me their own story about grief or loss so even though i was doing a wild comedy which also had people crying at the end they felt compelled to tell me their own story about loss and i thought 
this is really fascinating. I've never had this response before. And then it made me think, yeah, they're tapping into this vulnerability that finally, finally, I'm allowed on stage to reveal, which I've been hiding for God knows how long my whole life. And, um, and in 2004, the arena stage, which is, I mean, sorry, 2014, the biggest, one of the biggest theaters in the country invited me to perform Loveland. So it was eight shows a week. Uh, for six week run. And I thought, well, what if after I perform the show, I give out pens and paper to the audience, because they're stopping me in the lobby to tell me their stories. Why don't we just do it right here in the theater? And okay, so I took opening night took my bow and then I just passed out pens and paper. And that audience stayed. And they wrote about loss and grief. And it was extraordinary. And the next thing I know, this man, like in a Brooks Brothers suit, very conservative, uh, raises his hand and says, I would like to read mine. And he got up and he read about losing his wife to breast cancer. And it was extraordinary. He started crying in the middle of it. And then the audience is just, you could feel the whole audience with this man. And I saw this room full of strangers become this beautiful community holding space for one another to tell their stories. After he took the state, left the stage, another man got up. And then a woman, then a young teenager. It was like this gamut of an all class, all race, didn't matter, got up and shared their stories. And I thought, I love this. This is really beautiful. And it also made me, like if I had a suck-ass show, I mean, now I felt like all shows were really pretty darn good, but if I didn't feel good, like immediately the ego was dropped at the dressing room because I had to go right back out and be present in this kind of workshop leader to have stories. And then I was humbled immediately by everything that I heard. And I saw people, everybody just getting up and telling the story and they're the most powerful stories right there on the spot. And I thought, well, that's something I've never done. I've never just like God, I've crafted these theater pieces. I've done this. I'm just going to get up and tell my own story. I've never done that. And that's what happened in Miami. I said, I, and has happened, happened this year. I just get up and tell my own life story without it perfectly choreographed, planned, written out. And I just tell it and then offer other people to tell their own life story. Uh, we, because I feel like when we share our stories, we just give each other permission to, to, be, to be you, to be who you truly are. And that's, we try to hide it and make it like everybody else. I always love Ralph Waldo Emerson, who, that's somebody I masturbated to. Can you believe that? I masturbated Ralph Waldo Emerson. I love that you just told us that. I love that. (laughs) Anyway, maybe I'll have to cut that. I don't know. I don't think so. Anyway, um, he... uh, So he has this thing, insist upon yourself, never imitate. And insist upon yourself, never imitate. And I, I love that, that... And that's what I want to do when I teach and when I perform is that everybody fully express who they are. The Martha Graham quote, there's only one you, only you can express what you can express. And I think, uh, yay boo. So when I do my show now, there's this kind of crazy exercise called yay boo, where we sing along. Did you get that recorded? The song? Great. And that came from my, one of my friends, Susie Williams is a jazz singer and she was doing this song, yay boo, which I think was in 1930s. Everybody was doing yay boo songs with different lyrics. And I loved this. And I thought, well, this is freaking life. Yay boo is life. And when I heard it, it was to me such like a Buddhist thing. I'm not a Buddhist, but it, I, I love the Buddhist idea that the impermanence, that you can't cling to one thing. You can't cling to the yay. You can't cling to the boo. You just have to like be a witness to it, an awareness to that yay boo. And I thought, wow, this would be really cool um, as a life practice. And then 
last year I was teaching at Esalen with Alanis Morissette, our name dropped, <laughs> and we were doing this exercise. I mean, people were sitting down and they were listening to her and she was speaking and somebody says, Anne, you need to like shift gears so we can now have a movement exercise. And I had 125 people in there and I didn't know what to do. And, uh, and then it came to me, I'll have everybody stand up and sing Yay Boo. And then right after this song, I got this idea right there on the spot. Okay, everybody write. Five minutes, yay boo. And then, so that's when the first time I ever did it with a group of people. This show gives permission for people. So I, my whole, uh, I think creative journeys be how vulnerable, how exposed can I be? And I didn't really see it as myself. I saw it as I first do it through a character, speaking the truth, being vulnerable through the character. And it just took years for me to unfold and finally take everything off, well, kind of almost naked there on stage the other night, but to really expose my whole self. I think I was scared like everybody else. Like, what if I really show this part of me, this perverted part of me, or if I show this part, this really can be super angry. What will happen to me? So I hit it. And now it's just been this just taking off the mask completely and what it happens out there is that it gives other people permission they they identify they see it in themselves and they want to get up there and they want to speak and share too i think it's really liberating why well, don't think it i know it's liberating so ann asked everyone to do the exercise a bunch of people got up to share their yay boos here are three <laughs> Thank you. Okay. So I just read what I, I, All right. I was born to loving parents. But my brother hogged attention. He loved me. I think. My school years were spent being bullied. But that's how I met my best friend. He was the only other person being bullied. We've been friends and brothers for over 15 years. But he lives in another state now. But I always found company in women. Until they eventually all left me. They said I was a good guy. Just not as good as the other guy. I survived school, bullying, and breakups at a heavy cost. I lost my self-esteem, drowned myself in depression, had suicidal thoughts, and experienced loss of loved ones. But I did survive. I was born in Haiti. Yay! I grew up in Haiti until 19 years old. Yay! Then moved to the U.S. to live with my father and sister in 1996. Yay! I married my childhood friend in 1997. Yay! I broke up with him three months after. Ooh. I stopped dating for 18 years. Ooh. I was debating about dating because of my religion belief until that door's part. Yay! 
<laughs> I had my marriage annulled. I'm still debating about the principles I grew up with from my culture. I broke out the principle two years ago when I fell in love with Kenzie. I have a boyfriend. He proposed. Now still don't know what to do. When culture, religion, society, and myself get in the way. But one day I want to have sex. I'm Dale. I got married this year. I also got divorced this year. I have started three businesses. I have failed at three businesses. I got a new job this year. It pays a lot less than what I used to make. I am here with great friends tonight. They're moving very far away. I'm great at writing. But I barely write anymore because I don't want to go through the suffering, as much suffering as Ann Randolph. It's been a rough year, but I'm beginning to see the light. Thank you, Ann Randolph, and thank you, Lightbox, for having us here. Thank you, Evans Paul and Diego Saldana Rojas on sound. Huge thanks to our musicians, Daniel Correa and Ahmed King. Thank you, Concrete Beach Brewery and our volunteers, Anthony Askowitz, Ben Fistel, Steve Kaplan, Andrea Levine, Victoria Rep, Karen Colasso, Jasmine Rogers, Natalie Santos, Dina Weinstein, and Marvin Jenkins. Most of all, thank you to all the people who came out tonight to support us, especially those brave people who came up to the mic to share their stories. And to our listeners, as always, thank you for listening. Writing Class Radio is produced by Diego Saldana Rojas, Andrea Asquitz, and me, Allison Langer. We are sponsored by the University of Miami School of Communication. This episode is sponsored by the Sanibel Island Writers Conference. It's the best writing workshop to learn from published authors and great teachers. Our own Andrea Askowitz will be teaching there November 3rd through the 6th, 2016. If you're on the West Coast, look for me, Allison Langer, at the Explorers Retreat in Napa Valley, also November 3rd through the 6th. I'll be teaching photography and writing with Anne Randolph. Check our website for more information on both events. If you love us and want more, go to our website, read the stories we study, listen to our craft talks, and follow the daily prompts. This episode's writing prompt is part of a contest. If you'd like to read your story on our show, start writing. Deadline is November 30th, 2016. You can find more details on our website. The prompt for the contest is a time you fucked up. There's no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and telling our stories. Ann Randolph proved that tonight. Everyone has a story. What's yours?
I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com.